Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to take a second to thank all the people who support the show and help make it sustainable, both on Patreon and by signing up to Audible via the Dark Histories affiliate link. You can find links to both of those in the show notes if you're interested, or you can help out just by sharing the show with people who you think might be interested, on social media or with all the good people you might know. Alright, let's get on with the episode. Cheers. In 2011, Russia bore witness to a breaking news story involving a man named Anatoly Moskvin in what was to become one of the most bizarre cases in the country's criminal history. His was a story of black magic, the occult and one man's very unusual hobby. Sensationalised across the English-speaking internet, the true story may not contain necrophilia nor psychopathy but it remains no less shocking and easily among the darkest stories covered by myself to date. As terrifying as it is tragic. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome, Season 2, Episode 19 of Dark Histories. I hope you're all very well. Today we're going to be talking about a subject which I actually started writing in like way, way back in season one. At the time, I felt it was maybe a little bit, I don't know, there was just, it was a bit challenging maybe, and I put it to one side, but I always have sort of wanted to retread it and come back to it at some point, and you know, with it coming up to Halloween, I thought, you know, we can deal with a little bit, a little bit of creepiness. But quite aside of that, I actually ended up finding that it's a lot deeper than that. I still think it might be a little bit divisive and perhaps a little controversial, but got to do these things. Anyway, before we start, I just want to say thanks to the new patrons. We got Lily, Finn, Yanni, Christy, and I really hope I say your name right, uh, Colm. I think if I haven't pronounced that right, I'm really sorry. Uh, and also Godzilla, who just squeaked in as I was about to record. So yeah, welcome. It's wonderful to have your support. As always, all of the patrons, you're all fantastic. So yeah, it's wonderful to have you on board. Thank you very much. And also, we're on 99 reviews in the American iTunes store, which is amazing. I do read every review and I do take into account all the feedback left in the reviews. So I do really appreciate it. I think sometimes people think, a lot of podcasts, they say they, they they need reviews to sort of help be found and all the rest of it. And that's true. But also for me, it's, it's it helps me to get sort of feedback on the show. So, and I say, I do take it all into account. So yeah, I really appreciate all your reviews. Thanks very much. Anyway, let's crack on with it. So this is Russian Dolls, the story of Anatoly Moskvin. Anatoly Moskvin was born in the Soviet Russian locality of Gorky, today known as Nizhny Novgorod. He was born in 1966 to parents Yuri Fedorovich and Elvira Alexandrovna. His upbringing was far from easy. Whilst he was in third grade, he returned home one day, covered in bruises he had received whilst being raped by an unknown man. It's unclear whether or not he told this story to his parents as a child, but they had noted that something was wrong in his character. However, they had also known from an early age that he was intelligent, and as stalwart Soviets, 
They simply chalked his social awkwardness and difficulty making friends up to this fact, though they did try to question him on his behaviour. Whenever they brought it up, he reacted aggressively, and so instead, they left him to his devices. He was academically successful, always at the top of his class, but often bullied and ostracised at school, struggling to create social relationships. Instead, he squirreled himself away and spent every penny he came across on books whilst independently teaching himself languages. If this upbringing had so far managed to not scar the young Muskin, it was an incident that occurred on March 4th, 1979 that would do the job comprehensively. In later life, he referred to it as a turning point for him, igniting an interest in both the occult and the cemeteries he would later meticulously study almost on a level of pilgrimage. Aged 12 and attending school 184, Muskovin was out collecting waste paper with the rest of his class. In Soviet Russia, recycling was organised by the government and schools held compulsory competitions for waste paper collection. Framed as they were in a competitive setting, the pupils would often find themselves in places that they perhaps should not have been trying to outdo their classmates. And so it was that Muskvin found himself in the yard of a stranger. The occupants of the house were not having a very usual day, however, and clocking the two dozen adult figures wearing black robes, holding burning candles over a coughing, and singing in a foreign language, he knew that perhaps this time he had overstepped his boundaries. As he backed out of the yard and went to take off, one of the occupants that had seen him grabbed hold of his shoulder insisting to him that he should come and kiss the face of the dead child who lay in the coffin. The child was a young girl named Natasha Petrova. Aged 11, she had grabbed for a towel as she stepped out of the bath and instead made contact with a loose electrical cable, electrifying herself and dying instantly. Today was her funeral, though from the scene in front of him, Muskvin knew that this was no ordinary affair. He refused to kiss the girl, though the parents would not hear of it. He began to cry, sensing the futility of the situation. He had begged to be let go, but had won no favour, and so, realising the hopelessness of the situation, he approached the body in the coffin. A woman, apparently the mother of the deceased, gave me a large Hungarian apple and kissed my forehead. She led me to the coffin and promised me a great deal of candy, oranges and money. She told me to kiss the deceased. I burst into tears and begged her to let go, but the sectarians insisted. Everyone again sang prayers in a language I did not understand, and one of the adults drew my head to the waxy forehead of the girl in a lace cap. I had no choice but to kiss where I was ordered. Muskvin kissed the lifeless girl three times on the forehead. Two copper rings were produced and he was instructed to place one onto the finger of the girl and to wear the second himself. He was then awarded a basket of fruit and a small sum of roubles for his troubles and let free into the street, though not before he was told not to tell anyone of what had taken place for at least 40 days. On the corner of the street, Muskvin threw the fruit into the snow and then went to spend the money he had been given on a book about animals. After the event, he began having strange dreams of the dead girl who would visit him nightly. Natasha had come to him, she explained, to insist that he learn black magic from her. He refused this outright, though Natasha was anything if not persistent. 
She visited him in his dreams every night until he eventually went back to her village, which stopped the visitations for a time. Shortly after he returned home, however, the dreams started again. He told his parents about Natasha, and finally they decided to seek medical advice for their troubled son. The doctor, however, concluded that Muskvin was merely transitioning into puberty and prescribed him a course of valerian, a herbal sedative commonly taken to aid in sleep and relaxation. After a full year of these nightly visits, Natasha finally drew weary of Muskvin's rebutals. Instead, she tried a different act, suggesting a course of action that Muskvin could take to pass his burden onto another. He carried out a simple ceremony that she had described to him using a tooth he obtained from a classmate as a magical component in the ritual. This ended in success, and Natasha never visited him again, though her presence in his life would have a profound effect on him as an adult. He would visit the site of her grave at Krasnaya Etna whenever he was in the Leninsky district of Nizhny Novgorod. This event too opened his eyes to the strange world of the occult, which he would soon find a deep interest in. The whole affair also kick-started his interest in cemeteries, which he said attracted him like a magnet. As a university student, Muskvin studied in the Philological Faculty of Moscow State University. He had since a young age been interested in languages, and from his independent studies, now spoke a staggering 13 different languages. Taking advantage of the freedom of student life, Muskvin joined the Society of Luciferians, a theistic branch of Luciferianism that embraced many concepts of the left-hand path. He took part in rituals involving dead animals, passed a test to become a black magic user, and vowed celibacy and abstinence from drinking and smoking. Now he found that he regretted his earlier shunning of Natasha, though he still found the story of her visits to be useful. In the era of perestroika, I decided to study magic. Knowledgeable people did not refuse to teach me after I told them the story of my marriage to Natasha. In contrast to this occult path in his life, by day Muskvin wrote his thesis for the Department of German and Celtic Philology, and upon graduation began teaching Celtology at Nizhny Novgorod University. He published two Russian to English dictionaries, as well as a dictionary of foreign words and a dictionary of school phraseology aimed at school-aged children. His colleagues found him to be kind, punctual and a genius. This came at a certain social price, however, and many regarded him to be somewhat eccentric, whilst others found him straight difficult to get along with. Following several disagreements with some of the staff at the university, he left this position, instead focusing on writing and tutoring. His mother later explained how he enjoyed communicating with the children, and he was popular as a tutor teaching predominantly languages, though he also tutored various other subjects from history to literature. In 2003, Muskvin met Yulia Granova, a young woman whom he much admired. Yulia was spiritual and concerned with Indian religions, and the pair entered into a non-sexual relationship, with Yulia playing a role somewhat akin to a muse to Muskvin, whilst he continued to write. The relationship satisfied Muskvin's need for socialisation, whilst allowing him to maintain his vows of celibacy, and Yulia was happy enough with the arrangement, having suggested it herself. She wanted a child, however, and it didn't take much convincing for Muskvin to agree, as he had wanted a child of his own for many years already, 
given the non-sexual nature of their relationship, Muskvin applied for adoption of a young girl in 2003. By this point, his income was erratic, and he was living hand-to-mouth on the paychecks he received from journalistic work he published in several local papers. Outside of this small wage, he lived at home with his parents, who propped him up financially. His parents didn't hold the same enthusiasm for his plans to adopt, which led to tensions in the family, leading to Muskvin threatening. I told my mother that I would be engaged in black magic and get in touch with the spirits of the dead. Used to his eccentric behaviour, she merely told him to do as he pleased. In the end, it all fell to nothing. His application was rejected on the grounds that his earnings were too low and his relationship with Yulia eventually evaporated. The imminent need for a child appeared to fall to the background. Instead, Muskvin turned his attentions to a new adventure on the roads of Nizhny Novgorod. On July 18, 2005, Muskvin hit the road for the first time as part of a new research venture he had organised, financially assisted by Oleg Ryabov, a well-known Nizhny Novgorod-based historian. The pair planned to publish a book entitled Nizhny Novgorod Necropolis, and for Moskvin's part, he was to journey across the region documenting cemeteries and unearthing local history along the way. For three years, Muskvin travelled across Nizhny Novgorod. He averaged over 30 kilometres per day, most of it undertaken on foot due to the rural nature of many of the areas he visited. The buses would often leave only once per day and rarely held convenient schedules, and many of the roads he travelled were in various states of disrepair anyway. As he walked, he read books. My legs walked on the roads, my eyes walked on the lines. In general, he arrived in the cemeteries by the evenings, and he would spend the remaining daylight hours scraping the moss from old headstones with a chisel, writing the owner's names, dates of life and death, and any other information he could muster into a notebook with a pencil. He slept where he could, though oftentimes his bed was in the stone entrances of the cemetery, a haystack in a field, sawdust piles, or at lucky times, he would find a cemetery with a lodge and use that for shelter. One night in a Muslim cemetery in Sagatsky, he slept inside a coffin that had been kept in preparation for a future burial. The next morning he was awoken by two very surprised gravediggers, who fortunately for Muskvin were already drunk and were as startled as himself, which allowed for the situation to be smoothed over with a level of joviality. He never had any problems from police, he noted, as they never toured the graveyards. Only the lazy officials who drove their cars to secluded areas to sleep rather than patrol. On the occasions he was stopped and searched, he always showed them his academic research materials and was allowed to continue on his way. He was not always so fortunate with civilians, however, and in 2006, whilst documenting a cemetery in Batalinsky, he was approached by a group of a dozen drunk men who were out celebrating a wedding. They accused him of robbery. He pleaded with the men to be taken to police rather than beaten, and when they arrived at the station, the official smoothed the situation and drove him to the edge of town, warning him not to return. On another occasion, in September of 2006, he was visiting a cemetery in Pavlavo when he was mistaken for a priest by a trio of two drunk guys and a drunk woman who were mourning by the grave of their recently deceased daughter. When they asked him to sing with them, he declined, explaining he was no priest, and he turned to leave. 
the men beat him and robbed him of his money and watch. However, the next day, Muskvin revisited the gravesite, noted the name on the headstone and reported the affair to police, who followed up the lead and promptly arrested the men. Outside of the difficulties the research threw up with drunk locals, the sheer exhaustion of it all took its toll on Muskvin. In 2006, he noted that the weather was unusually rainy throughout the summer, and in 2007, it was unusually hot, leading him to drink from puddles. It was safe to say that the work was exhausting, and Muskvin attributed the exertion of the years he spent trekking across rural landscapes to research the graveyards for greying his hair and thinning his hairline. It wasn't all struggle, however. He noted also the general hospitality of many people who bought him food and drove him between various rural villages free of charge. In the end, it was all for a good cause, he would remind himself. Many records had been lost during the Soviet regime, and Muskvin did not find the reports from newspapers to be trustworthy. Even before the Soviets, he noted that the handwriting and the general poor condition of old documents made the information extracted from them far from trustworthy. It was far better, he insisted, to get out on the roads and do the work for yourself. Between 2005 and 2007, Muskvin visited 752 cemeteries in 35 districts, uncovering the pasts of over 1,000 people that had been thought to be lost to time. Quite aside from the research work for his upcoming book, this pilgrimage held a second, rather more disturbing advantage for Muskvin, one that would overshadow any of his previous works of writing. Between 2006 to 2010, after his research into cemeteries, Muskvin wrote for various papers, including the Nizhny Gorodovsky Robotsky, where he wrote twice-monthly pieces on cemeteries and history, and in the Nizhny Novgorod Worker, writing on various historical subjects. Never one to shy away from the taboo, he wrote an article concerning the Mongol Tatar invasions of Russia between the 13th and 15th centuries, which accused the invaders of raping thousands of women. This drew both criticism from the public, as he found himself accused of extremist activity against the Tatar people, as well as interest to the E-Division of the MVD, the Russian Department of Internal Affairs anti-terror outfit. In 2008, Muskvin published a book on the history of the swastika as a solar symbol up until the 19th century. This drew attention upon him once again. This time he came under fire and was accused of being a fascist, once again pricking the ears of the authorities. After the 2011 Damadjadova International Airport terror bombings, Muskvin visited a Muslim cemetery and painted tombstones along with affixing newspaper reports to headstones containing names of the deceased. This had followed a flurry of anti-Muslim activity in the area and desecration of Muslim graves around the region and prompted the E-Division, who had been following him for some time now, to take action. On the 2nd of November 2011, they raided Muskvin's apartment. Rather than extremist materials, however, they found something far, far more disturbing. Inside the apartment, officials found 29 human-sized dolls, dressed in women's clothing and painted with crude makeup. Some of them had music boxes embedded into their chests, allowing them to speak. The scene of these dolls, propped up around Muskvin's room and stored in the garage, would be quite strange enough. However, the dolls held a darker secret. 
As the E-Division began searching and clearing the apartment, they noticed the dolls made a rattling sound when they were picked up and shook. They opened one up and found that stored inside each one was the mummified remains of a human body. Muskvin had been collecting more than just history from the graveyards of Nizhny Novgorod. As the E-Division tore through the apartment, they found more and more dolls, 29 in total, all dressed in outfits of paper and cloth and arranged throughout the rooms. They carried each one out of the house to be placed on the back of a truck in front of the gathering crowds of journalists and locals who watched on in curious disbelief of the stories they heard filtering into the streets through whispers and gossip. The story was too much for papers to resist and by the next day it blew up nationally with headlines dubbing Muskfin the puppeteer. Following the arrest, his father was hospitalised, suffering a heart attack. His mother was also hospitalised for a period, blaming her poor health on the shock of their son's arrest. Despite living with the dolls for so long, they held fast to the story that they had no idea what was inside the macabre effigies. They appeared like crude paper mache dolls, and in the past, Muskvin had held an interest in Russian dolls, so his parents just assumed it was an extension of that interest. A friend of his parents spoke of their shock in a later interview. The dolls didn't turn up suddenly. Muskvin had built up the collection over ten years. All of them were kept in his room. There was only one in his parents' rooms, which he named Masha. His parents had no idea. When friends visited, they often remarked on them as works of art, calling them puppets. They just never thought they might contain mummified humans. The only concern his mother had was that at times he would talk to them. Are you a child, she would say. Why do you play with them? On one New Year's Eve, Muskvin introduced Masha to his aunt, after sitting her at the family table. This is Masha, he said. Do not be afraid of her. All of the dolls were found to contain the mummified remains of young girls who had suffered tragic and often violent deaths. Though there are several whose names and details were never released, the reported ages of the deceased range anywhere between 3 and 30 years old. Muskvin stuffed the mummified remains with cloths and rags, dressed them in clothes he found in the trash, and made their faces up with makeup and paint. He knew all of their names, their histories, and the circumstances of all of their deaths. He dug up the first body on the 9th of May in 2003 following the disagreement with his parents over adoption, instead deciding on resurrecting the deceased with his black magic. The coffin was covered with crimson synthetic material. With a chisel, I hollowed out a hole in the lid of the coffin at the head, and through it, I pulled out what was left of the body. It was in very poor condition. The girl was dressed in a white blouse, black skirt, old tights and shoes. The child had long hair. Then I decided for the first time to try to mummify it. I moved the body to a remote corner of the cemetery and buried it in the abandoned grave of some grandmother. To properly mummify the body, you need soda and salt in various proportions. I bought these substances in the store. I found old stockings in the garbage dump and made bags from them, pouring soda and salt into them and tied them to the remains. I changed these bags once a week. If people paid attention to me, I said that I was there to feed the birds. On July 25, 2003, I wrapped the body in different clothes and carried it back to my home in my backpack. Within two days, I restored the body. 
I stuffed rags inside and then I sewed the body with threads and made a wax mask on her face and then covered it with nail polish which I found in the trash. After that I put on her clothes which I also found in the trash. Some of the dolls had buttons for eyes whilst others had masks made from soft toys. Whilst in custody awaiting trial Muskvin cooperated with police investigations detailing the various cemeteries the bodies had been removed from as well as supplying the names of the girls he had exhumed. On the 12th of May he gave an interview to Russian journalists explaining how and why he had collected these dolls. The thing is, I'm practicing black magic. I wanted to revive them. I felt sorry for these children who could still live and live. I kept them so that when science learns to fight cancer, it can later revitalize them. Genetics are developing now very rapidly. I felt sorry for all these children. I am an expert in Celtic studies and studying Celtic culture. I noticed that the Druids had a tradition of communicating with the spirits of the deceased by sleeping on graves. When I studied the cultures of the peoples of Siberia, specifically the culture of the ancient Yakuts, there too I found a similar practice. I also began to sleep on the graves of the children who liked me. The spirits of the deceased children came to me. Accordingly, I checked whether it was demons that came or whether it was spirits. I collected all the information I could. Then, if possible, I checked this information. I was convinced that the spirits of the dead children really came to me. At first I slept on the graves, then I adjusted, because it was not convenient to sleep there. Instead I carried the bodies where it would be convenient for me to sleep on them. I began to dry them and bring them home. This was done very cleverly and slowly, one at a time, so nobody knew about it. I studied the theory, the technology of mummification from all available books. I studied the ancient Egyptian scripts. I went to Moscow specifically to study the whole thing. The journalists went on to ask him what he did with them whilst he kept them in his home. I talked with them. We had a hierarchy, our own language. We had, respectively, our songs. We had our own holidays. We had our own inner peace. My parents saw almost nothing of this and I did not let anyone else into this world. As a rule, my parents left the house for summer, leaving in April and returning in October. At this time, we were engaged in this world. I guess I really explored all that I could explore in this area of black magic. To be honest, I had my favorite children. Those that I liked less, I planned to keep them in the garage. I did not disfigure them, I did not dismember them. I applied all of my work gently, affectionately, politely. I even tried not to swear in front of these children. The fact is that I suffered very much from loneliness, especially during the summer period when my parents were not there and when they took the cat. I sat them down, they had holes drilled under their eyes, I showed cartoons to them, I played children's songs, I myself sang songs to them, ordinary children's songs that I would sing when I have a live daughter. After that we ate together, or rather, I ate. I just offered them food, as it is in the Celtic or Yakut tradition. I have been studying child psychology for about 10 years, preparing for the upbringing of a child. I have experience of communicating with living children from my tutoring. What I would do with living children, I would do with these. I treated them as if they were alive. 
they were just temporarily dead. Musk then spoke of how he held birthday parties for the children and celebrated special events with them. When a journalist asked if he knew that what he had done was illegal, he replied, Yes, I realised that it was illegal, but at the time when the heroes of our science, Dubinin or Chetverikov, when they were experimenting with fruit flies somewhere in their closet, they also knew that it was illegal under the laws of Stalin's time. It was just then that genetics was banned, now cloning is prohibited. From the very beginning, I knew that I was committing a crime, but I was so sorry for the children that, unfortunately, cloning is prohibited in our country. It will be allowed sooner or later. I just wanted some material for future cloning, so that these children could live for a second time. I was very sorry for these children. Naturally, every time I dug a grave, I leveled it so that nothing could be seen, so as not to disturb those who were relatives. The fact is that for 10 years, this was kept secret, so I knew that none of the relatives of the deceased would ever know about this. I did everything neatly. I was not arrested in a cemetery. The MVD came to me on quite another matter, and accidentally they found the dolls. Nobody knew what I made these dolls from. Even my parents did not know. Terrifyingly, when asked why he did it all, he remarked that he wanted a child, a daughter of his own that he could share all of his knowledge with. The dolls were, for Muskvin, a twisted surrogate. The children that I liked, I dried, resurrected and brought to my home. In May of 2012, the trial of Anatoly Muskvin began. Though he faced five years imprisonment, he was quickly deemed as insane and exempt from any criminal liability. A psychological evaluation diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia and on the 27th of September 2013, he was sentenced instead to compulsory medical measures. This essentially imprisoned him in a psychiatric clinic where his case is reviewed on a six-monthly basis and could see him locked away for the rest of his life. During the trial, families of the girls he had mummified shouted out to the judge to imprison him for life, whilst others shouted for the death penalty. Eventually, neither prosecution nor defence appealed the outcome. He was ordered to pay compensation of up to 75,000 US dollars for moral damages to the families of each child, though interestingly, the father of one of Muskvin's dolls rejected any compensation. I would not take anything from Muskvin. After all, he treated my daughter better than I had during her life. He dressed her, put her to bed, read her fairy tales and showed her cartoons. This split in opinion seen at the trial is one that echoes throughout Russia and remains until this day, shaping the current events surrounding Muskvin's incarceration. In June of 2015, Muskvin's usual hearing was to take place to extend his stay in the psychiatric hospital for a further six months. However, on this occasion, things went a little differently. As the hearing was about to begin, the judge assumed all would go as it had previously, but this time, Muskvin had a new lawyer. Violetta Volkova, the same human rights lawyer who shot to international fame when she defended the feminist punk band Pussy Riot, openly speaking out against the Russian regime and judicial system. It had been reported that Muskvin had been beaten regularly by both guards and other patients, placed in isolation and not given freedom to leave his room, though his family may visit him daily. 
His mother claims he is fed up to 15 tablets a day, including many sedatives, leaving him unable to write, often dribbling on himself and sleeping for large portions of the day. Volkova gave new demands for Muskvin, insisting that he be transferred to an independent clinic in Moscow for re-examination, expressing distrust for the psychiatric doctors in Muskvin's current institution. Alongside Violetta, Muskvin has spent the last two years pressing for release and to continue his treatment at home as an outpatient. In 2018, this edged closer to reality as the case for release gained the backing of his current doctors. The hearing is due to take place on September the 27th, and that's in four days' time for anyone listening to the podcast on its day of release. Whoever hired Volkova did so in some secrecy, though some have speculated it to be a TV station hoping to profit from the back of his release, whilst others have put forward theories of an arts group in Moscow or a human rights group. Despite this, and knowing full well of the poor treatment he had been given during his incarceration, his own parents do not wish for him to be released, fearing he would simply repeat his crimes. On the flip side, he appears to have met a future bride, an anonymous 25-year-old lady who studied at the same philological faculty he graduated from so many years ago. The fate of Muskvin's future is still up in the air, and his previous court hearings have suffered from several postponements. In fact, the hearing during four days has itself already been rescheduled from its original date of the 12th of September, but it does appear that the tale of Anatoly Muskvin may soon turn a new page. If he is to be released, Muskvin has expressed interest in returning to work, translating written works in Moscow and marrying his mystery bride. At least this time, his wife will be alive. Here we go. Pretty challenging material. Take a few to regain your composure. We'll have a couple of adverts and then I'll come back to sort of talk about what I, sort of my feelings about the whole thing and go through it all, I guess. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Avey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. So today, I've got a promo for another podcast to play you guys. The subject matter is a little different, but it's run by my good friend Trent, and he's a single dad and he's putting out a podcast about being a single parent, documenting his own struggles, and we'll be getting guests and such to talk about the various ups and downs. Like I said, it's a little different subject matter, but I think it's a great idea. I certainly can't pretend to know what it's like to raise a child in any situation, so I wanted to introduce the show to you guys, and if it can help someone out knowing that there's others out there in the same boat as them, and that's all good. Anyway, here's the promo so you can hear about it in his own words. 
only getting to see your kid half the time can be hard on any parent. The ins and outs of navigating life as a parent in this situation can often be confusing and frustrating. Well, in my new project, the Part-Time Parent Podcast, I'm going to attempt to explain through some of the issues we have as parents living a life with joint custody. You can find me on Twitter at PT Parent or Part-Time Parent Podcast on iTunes and Google Play. So, come join me on my journey as I document myself trying to be a better dad and potentially giving helpful advice. Ads are a pain in the butt, right? So do you want to know a good way to avoid listening to them? If you sign up to Dark History's Patreon, you get ad-free versions of the show with early access to episodes, access to bonus content, stickers, exclusive discounts on the t-shirt store, and all that other good stuff. You get content from me, you get videos, I give like a little running commentary and behind the scenes of how I make the show. And by being a member, you're directly supporting the show. You can sign up for as little as $1 per month and you can help make Dark Histories the best it can be. For more information, check out our website at darkhistories.com or pop over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash darkhistories. Right, enough of all that. Thanks for listening and let's get back to the episode. Welcome back. So, Anatoly Moskvin, tricky one. Possibly the most challenging, I think, that I've dealt with since starting the podcast. So I, I was going to write it way back in season one and I started and just threw in the towel really and I just thought this is maybe, I don't know at the time it wasn't, it was feeling a bit too dark but I, I feel like I probably only scratched the surface but I'm really glad I did get around to covering it. At first I was sort of going through like, oh you know, what can I do? You know, we're coming into Halloween, what sort of really creepy stories can I do? And obviously this one sort of popped out because it's, I mean, you have ghosts and stuff and that's creepy, but then you have people that are just, you know, mummify children and make them into dolls. That's really creepy. So obviously I kind of thought that would be a good idea, but then I sort of obviously started researching it and you actually realise that there's a whole lot, you know, the case is a lot deeper than that. And, and actually, you know, you, you start sort of learning about his kind of psyche and, and you realise that actually it's much more challenging than that. So you have to say that at the very, very least, he was severely misguided. And what he did was very, very wrong. But somehow I feel like my conclusion is not as cut and dry as that. Like it's, it's too easy to call him a freak and write him off as a psycho. But the reality is it's, it's much more nuanced. He was just really, really unwell and failed to be given any of the help that he clearly needed. I wondered about the stories of him as a child. I wondered how much the story of the kissing the girl's forehead, being forced to kiss the girl's forehead, I wondered if that was true. I mean, I can see it being true, I suppose. I don't think there's anything too wrong with it. I think possibly it was was true, but it's... It's mad, isn't it? And and the thing is, uh, the thing that makes me doubt it was just that it seemed to sort of go along with a lot of his kind of occult delusions, I guess you could say. But, you know, there's no reason to doubt it. And, and you know, that that's going to have... Well, it did sort of go a long way in, in messing him up. So, you know, he obviously had that difficult upbringing. And he's obviously, you know, a genius. And, and 
you know there are times when you see these people that are clear geniuses and they suffer in other ways and and obviously he would he obviously had suffered a lot with mental illness and that's difficult especially when you're not given the help that you need and and I think that's the case with him you know in in terms of what he actually done it's it's undeniable that he upset families and it's pretty terrible thing to have done and it must have been really hard for them to deal with but he didn't really have any malicious intent and that's partly why I wanted to sort of cover this in the first place was because I, I read a lot of stuff online about him years ago and obviously all the English speaking sort of blogs you tend to find that with cases that are not from English speaking countries people tend to fill in gaps when they cover it in English and by doing so they those gaps that they filled in themselves become fact when they're not and the thing that sort of drew me to this case was when, when I first found out that um, he wasn't actually a necrophiliac. So a lot of people were saying that he was a necrophiliac and all this. When actually none of that's true, but it's it's often repeated. In fact, I think probably almost everything that you see on crappy YouTube videos and stuff will call him that. And I think they're just going for shock value. I mean, that's sad on two levels for me. Like, firstly you shouldn't have this case is shocking enough without adding to it you know and secondly it's sort of demonizing mental illness in a way i think i think it's it's too easy it's like i say it's too easy to say oh he's a psychopath and a necrophiliac derp like when actually the reality is much 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 more challenging you we have to have a level of compassion really for the fact that he was very ill and didn't get any help. And in the end of the day, as bad as it was, what he was doing, as far as he was concerned, he was doing things correct. One of the interesting things was that he didn't want to hurt the families and he knew that what he was doing was going to hurt the families. So he knew that what he was doing was wrong himself, but he tried to make it so they'd never know. And you can say that he was just trying to cover his own back, but I think you can also say that I, like he just didn't want to hurt anyone from doing what he was doing, which shows either a level of compulsion or just, um, you know, like a degree of a lack of self-control or something maybe. So he's just trying to sort of minimise problems that he was causing. It's It's complicated as hell, really, I think. Like my feelings when I finished this was so complicated because on one hand you read certain parts of it and you just want to say, well, yeah, he was, you know, a psycho and just accept that, whoa, you know, what he was doing was crazy. And and they're the kind of parts of the story which are really creepy and interesting. And I suppose from like, a, you know, this is going to sound awful, but from like an entertainment perspective or perhaps not entertainment, but, but from a perspective of like that kind of macabre sort of darkness that sort of draws you in. You know, it's easy. You can you can sort of just sit sit on that part of the story and say, yeah, absolute madness. But you have to kind of really, no matter what, you kind of have to address the fact that, you know, why was he doing this? And when you start sort of getting into that, I think you start kind of then, it changes it to something a little more, and a little certainly a lot more complicated, and definitely a lot more tragic. 
I found it interesting that his, that his parents don't want actually don't actually want him to be released. That they said, you know, basically, just leave him in there. That 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 I find that that must have been a hard decision. I know they suffered a lot since him getting arrested. They've had um, like threats, and their house gets raided constantly by investigators, and they can't sell their house because people don't want to be associated with it. And people don't want to be associated with them, so they don't really have any friends. Even their families kind of shun them. So I know they've had to really suffer a lot for it. And I know this is this is what's really interesting is the way I sort of feel about it is echoed across Russia, really. And when you read a lot of what people think about it, that's obviously quite split as well. And I saw a lot of comments on newspaper reports, and some of them sort of say, you know, he should be released. He's not doing anything worse than the government do every day and things like this, which is quite interesting. And there are others that just sort of straight up call him a pervert and leave it at that. It's obviously really polarising. But I think deep down, we've got to recognise that these people are humans. And when you come across someone like Muskvin who did bad things, but without really any intent and not... You can't say he didn't hurt anyone because of the families. He didn't intend to maliciously go about his ways. Like I say, you've got to sort of treat these people like humans and think of them as humans and, and, and question why he's doing what he's doing. And it, and it all came down to for him that partly I think he was just really lonely, partly... I mean, obviously, overriding all of this was his mental health problems. But throughout that, he just was lonely. He wanted children and he felt bad for these children who he saw as, you know, having their life ended too quickly because they all died unnatural deaths. So, you know, for him, he saw all of their lives had ended too quickly and he wanted to help them. You know, that was, as far as he was concerned, he was trying to do good obviously misguided you know you have to say he's obviously a hundred percent misguided in that but yeah complicated feelings about this one in interesting story though at the end of the day you have to sort of accept that he he obviously did things which are very very wrong in the eyes of everyone so you wouldn't even say most people i mean what he was doing was wrong and, you know, when you look at it, say, from a shadow level, my lord, was it wrong? I mean, it was dark and messed up as hell. But, you know, at the same time, I, there's quite a large part of me that just sort of feels sorry for him, really, I think. Obviously, I'm well and didn't get any of the help that he, he needed. So, yeah, that's more or less where I'm going to leave that because it's, it's not a mystery. I'd definitely like to hear your opinions. I worry a bit that it's going to be polarising and people are going to listen to me talking then and think I'm a nutcase. But that's fine. You know, I'd love to hear your opinions. I, You know, let me know what you think. On that note, you can get in touch with me. Contact at darkhistories.com And we've got some emails right now. So let's do them. Let's bring it up a bit. So we've got a first email from Nate. He says, Hey, I love your podcast. I think you do a great job framing historical incidents in a judicious and informed manner. 
any chance you do an episode on Joan Rish or Reich? Not sure how to pronounce that yet. Um, all right, Nate, I've never heard of Joan Rish until you emailed me. and I looked it up and I loved it. And it's definitely something that I'm going to be looking into doing. Yeah, I really enjoyed sort of looking it up. It, it seems like it would fit the podcast absolutely. So yeah, yeah, definitely going to be doing that in the future. Got another one from Daniel and he says, Hey Ben, just a quick note to say that I love the podcast generally and especially enjoyed this most recent episode about Nellie Butler. Your analysis of the incident reminded me in many ways of my own favourite historical ghost story, the Reverend John Ruddle's 1665 account of the ghost of Dorothy Dingle. Right, Daniel, that's a great name for a start. How can I not be interested? Uh, he says, here again, we see a ghost story which predates not only the spiritualist movement, but many of our long-standing ghost story conventions. The result is at once whole, whole, the result is at once wholly strange and, as far as I'm concerned, entirely delightful. Anyway, I've been meaning to write for some months to express my appreciation for the podcast and your reasonable, thoroughly researched approach to true crime and the supernatural alike. And this recent episode gave me the perfect excuse. Thanks so much for that, Daniel. Um, and you get Daniel included a couple of links in that, which which I'm definitely enjoying working through on my lunch breaks at the moment. Just, some of them are quite long, but they they're really great. And yeah, I'd, I'd be looking into that Ghost of Dorothy Dingle as well because John Ruddle and Dorothy Dingle just sound like fantastic names to me. Anything from 1665 with a ghost of Dorothy Dingle, I mean, I'm all over that. And the last email was from James and he said, really like the podcast. I discovered it on Reddit's weekly Submit Your Podcast thread on our podcasts. I was also posting a podcast on there. So I only discovered Dark Issues a couple of days ago, but I'm sure I'll get through both seasons in the next week. My podcast focuses on similar subject matter, and it's called uh, Midnight Tales. Do you have any advice in regards to promotion for a total noob? Cheers and keep up the good work, James. James, I've got absolutely no idea how to promote anything. I'm absolutely shocking at promotion for Dark Histories. The only places I do, so this is sort of an answer for everyone, the only places I promote are our podcasts, pretty much, and which is Reddit. And podcasts we listen to, which is a group on Facebook. Um, they said they're probably the only two places I really promote other than sort of Twitter. But I mean, I do that sporadically and I'm really bad at promotion in general. But for everyone, those places are podcasts and podcasts we listen to on Facebook. They're both really good places to not only promote a podcast, but find new podcasts if you sort of want to find new stuff. So I recommend that to everyone, really, um, to get involved on those places. Yeah, so I'd say, so obviously you've got our podcast covered because that's where you found me, James. But, you know, I'll give your podcast a quick shout out. Uh, it's called Midnight Tales. So there you go. You're already better at doing promotion than me because you've reaching out to other podcasts and networking, which is something I don't really do. And it's not because I don't want to. It's just because after making everything, like researching, writing, editing, all the other guff you have that goes along with it, my promotion lacks. So, yeah. Um, but cheers for your email, James. And yeah, Midnight Tales, that's that. If you're interested in getting in touch, send me an email, say especially about this episode. I'd be really interested in hearing what you think. Um, you can either just throw me an email at contact at darkhistories.com or you can visit darkhistories.com and you'll find the links to an email there as well as links to Discord, which you can come on and actually chat. There's also links to all of our social stuff. Next week on the 28th, we're doing a third live stream event now. 
let's call it an event. It's more like it's just a live stream. We talk about the episodes and just have a chat. Last time went on for about three hours. That's on YouTube. You can get involved. Um, I post all the links for that on social media as we sort of approach it, get a bit closer to it. Um, you can get involved with the live stream as it's happening, sort of interact as it happens, either through YouTube chat or if you come on our Discord, you can actually like get a space on the actual stream and come and have a chat. And it's, it's good fun. So the next one of that's going to take place on the Friday the 28th at 9pm EST. That'll be on YouTube and I'll post links on all our social stuff for that. Other than that, if you want to support patreon.com forward slash dark histories you get early access bonus episodes access to archives of stuff um, which is not much but it's building up stickers postcards things like that and um, help support the show and that's wicked so yeah if you want to do that patreon.com forward slash dark histories or just go darkhistories.com you'll find links for everything there so yeah that's pretty much the episode this week I will see you all either next week at the live stream or in a couple of weeks. I hope until then you have a fantastic run up to Halloween. We'll be doing a Halloween special episode, so look forward to that. And yeah, I'll see you all soon. Get in touch with me if you'd like to speak to me about masking. Cheers. And for the first time, I'm probably going to say, if you've listened to this before bed, best of luck with getting to sleep. Sleep tight.